Good morning. We're going to read from uh, Jonah. Jonah 1:17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord anointed the great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress. He answers me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all the waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temples. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds are wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Okay, well, we have been... This is week two of uh, a look as a community at the book of the prophet Jonah. And uh, I would strong, I don't usually aggressively say this. I'm gonna say it aggressively right now. If you miss, if you miss last week, you should go check out last week's sermon. That's my aggressive voice. Um, you should uh, consider firing up the old podcast and listening to it. Because um, I think, uh, yeah, J- Jonah is not what it seems. Jonah is not what it seems, and um, we're going to continue that theme today. Just to recap a little bit from last week, um, I, I ended up titling the sermon last week, The Worst Prophet to the Worst City, which I don't know why that came to me, but that's the idea. This guy, Jonah, who is a figure uh, from the Hebrew Bible, from the history books, um, he is called in the book of Jonah by God to go and speak out against the city of Nineveh. Uh, which is the capital of Assyria, the biggest, baddest, worst sort of ancient empire on the planet at the time. These were people with, with a scale and sense of cruelty that is almost unfathomable to us today in this world. We see, we see glimpses of it, but the, the amount, the amount and the intensity of their cruelty was, was unique. Um, and so question, pop quiz for those who, who, did, who were here last week. Jonah, good guy or bad guy? you think? Bad guy. Good guy. It's kind of both. But he, by the end of the first chapter, I think you're meant to see this guy is a bad guy. And it's ironic because uh, he's the prophet. He's the man of God. He's the one that God has chosen to go bring this message uh, to this nation. Okay, Nineveh, capital of Assyria, pagan nation, very violent, oppressive people. Good guys or bad guys? Bad guys. Bad guys. And yet... They're the ones that God is doggedly committed to going and preaching this message. What the message entails, we will see as, as it goes on. So suddenly, like already from out of the gate in this book, this is very strange and interesting. Everything is upside down. And Jonah, the prophet, the supposed man of God, 
He refuses the mission God gives him. God says, go preach against, which is interesting, go preach against Nineveh, and Jonah just flees. He books it the complete opposite direction. He's supposed to go west, but he go, or he's supposed to go east, but he goes west uh, as far as humanly possible in rebellion. And what we said last week was that Jonah's motivation for running very well could have been fear. I mean, if, if, if this nation is in the habit of flaying people's skin off their bodies while they're alive, uh, it's fair enough to want to avoid that fate if you're going to go and speak out against them publicly. But more than that, what the rest of the book reveals is that even deeper than that fear of the Ninevites was a hatred of them. And kind of an understandable hatred, right? Because there's a horrible, a horrible people, a horrible people. But Jonah knows even in going to speak out against them, which is what God is calling him to do, he knows, he knows his God. And he knows even in that act of speaking out against them, there is always an offer of mercy. <laughs> There's always an offer of forgiveness. And he doesn't want to even entertain that possibility that that could be shown to these people. So he runs. And then we said, the final thing we see is that he's on the boat, head the opposite direction, and God stirs up this gigantic storm. And the sailors are trying to throw their stuff overboard. They're trying to survive, keep the boat afloat. Meanwhile, Jonah is asleep at the bottom, uh, just blissfully unaware. And what we saw through the storm was, first of all, an interesting kind of mercy through the storm, because through the storm episode, though Jonah refuses to go and take God's message to the pagan nations, even through this act of the storm, the sailors, the pagan sailors on the boat end up coming to faith in the God of Israel, which is very fascinating. Uh, and then we see, you know, they, they, they figure out that Jonah's the reason for this, and they say, what do you want us to do? And he says, throw me overboard. No, this was important. He doesn't say, take me back, you know, to the port so I can go back on my mission. I think this is really important. This is important to, to, to Jonah's state of mind. He doesn't say, okay, I, I, you know, I realize it's my fault. Take me back. I'll do what God asks. Instead, he says, throw me in the water. Throw me in the water. And we see that as potentially, potentially, it's hard to say. The book doesn't spell this out exactly, but I would argue what we're seeing here is Jonah's death wish. He would rather be thrown into the water and drown then take this message that God has for this nation, for this city that he hates. So the story ended right there. That's where we cut it last week. Jonah goes into the water, the storm stops. The pagan sailors, they repent, they make vows and offerings to God and they begin to worship him. And so what's gonna happen to this disobedient prophet? That's the question we're left with. So let me pray, now that we're caught up and we're gonna jump in and see what does happen next. Lord, this is a mysterious book, it's a funny book. Uh, and I really do believe, Lord, that this is a timely book for our community, Lord, as we consider uh, the, the people of God's relationship to the cities they find themselves near and called to and around. Um, we need this, Lord. We need, we need the convicting nature of this book as we all grapple with life in the city of Portland right now, as we grapple with life here. Uh, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear exactly what you would have for us as we, as we consider it this morning, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jonah chapter 1 culminates Jonah's thrown into the water. What we pick up with, what, what Ron read, read for us, let's put it up there, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 1. Oh, did I put the wrong slides in? Is there another slide? Oh, I guess I gotta grab my Bible. <laughs> there are worse problems than verse 17 Jonah hits the water oh sorry so Jonah's in the water and the Lord appointed a great fish 
to swallow Jonah. This is what we all know about this, but if you know anything about Jonah, you're, you're familiar with the fish episode. And he's in the stomach of the fish, three days and three nights, we're told. Um, and we, ba- we have to kind of put together what's happened here because the narrative kind of just jumps forward for us. But basically, through Jonah's prayer here in chapter two, um, we basically see Jonah reflecting back on what's happened in this episode in the water here. We can see what happened. So again, he asked not to be taken back to Joppa towards Nineveh, but to be thrown into the water. The subtle message, or maybe not so subtle, is just kill me. I'd rather die than what you have for me, God. He was thrown in, and we see here that he began to sink. So he's just sinking down into the tumultuous waters. That's what the, his prayer describes, the, the sinking down. It says the currents engulfed him, the breakers and billows covered him. He was sinking down into the depths, the weeds wrapped around his head, and he found himself down, he says, at the roots of the mountains. I love that image. He describes himself as in the pit, the land where the bars closed upon him forever. Another image he uses in his prayer is he was in the belly, the belly of Sheol, which is that ancient Israelite uh, conception and as well as for other nations of the land of death, the land of death. He was sinking into the belly of Sheol. He was gobbled up by death itself is what Jonah says. Death was inevitable. It was unavoidable. It was imminent. That's what Jonah felt and that was the truth. That was the truth. What I would argue here is that what Jonah is being given is what he wanted. He's being given what he wanted. He didn't want the life that God had for him. He didn't want the plans that God had for him. He didn't want to live at all. He, would, he had made a commitment to do his life his way, cut off from God's vision of flourishing, which involves the possibility of even a nation like Nineveh repenting and coming to him in Jonah's, in Jonah's um, understanding. He wanted a life cut off from God's vision of flourishing, of the good, of the beautiful, of the true. And this had led him to want to die and to get that death. So what changes? When we get to the prayer in Jonah 2, he's like praying, he's like, I called out to God or whatever. And I, you know, at first I was kind of like thrown off by this, like, what is this? Like Jonah wants to die, and all of a sudden he doesn't want to die. Something changes in him. Suddenly he flips from a desire for death to a desire for life. The fear and the hatred of death kicked back in, and with it a desperation. And in the poem, verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away at the last possible moment, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So again, what was happening here? Doesn't he seem a little schizophrenic? Throw me into the water. There's no other way that this is gonna go except death. I mean, certainly on an ancient person's understanding, like the water's just this death, cosmic death machine. Throw me in the water. But then suddenly, he wants something else. One minute, throw me into the sea, the next I'm pleading for my life. And the more, though, I've thought about this, the more I recognize and I'm convinced of how deeply well-observed this is about the human condition. It often takes us experiencing what we think we want, what we think we want, before we can go another direction, before we can actually desire something better than what we think we want. We see this all the time with children. I see this all the time in my kids and just their random obstinance about things. Like I'm always trying to convince my kids to do something far better than like whatever it is that they're sort of entertaining themselves with. The, the, like my, <laughs> one of the like, 
classic Hager family stories growing up was one of these. So when I was in kindergarten, I just, I feel like, I felt so much a connection to Jonah here. I had, I don't know what it was. It was like a, a recital or something. Let's, let's say it was like a singing thing. And it was time to go. And I was in this phase where the only thing in the entire world I wanted to wear was my Power Rangers sweatpants. And they're like, well, you've got to wear khaki, you've got to wear pleated khakis, Cameron. It's 1990-whatever, 1992, we wear pleated khakis when we do things like this. And I said, no, I'm not wearing the pleated khakis. Give me the, give me the Red Ranger. Uh, that's what I want. And of course, my parents said, no, you can't. They're not going to let you up on stage. This is what they've asked you to wear. And I said, fine. I'm going like this. This was me in my Red Ranger whitey tidy underwear because <laughs> they were trying to get me dressed. And I said, I'll just go like this. And, they, and they, they pleaded and they pleaded and they pleaded. And eventually, you know what they said? Okay. <laughs> I said, okay. Every parent, you know that move. Said, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So I remember them like walking me to the car and I thought I was kind of winning this thing, kind of cockily, like, yeah. Got him right in the palm of my hand. And got in the car, and it was, you know, 10, 15 minute drive to wherever we were going. And I just remember the pressure mounting, like the, the further we got to the school, just like, okay, okay, yeah, we're getting pretty close. I thought I was going to call their bluff here. I mean, they, there's no way they would let me go out in my underwear amongst their, their peers, their respected peers. Uh, but they kept going, they kept driving. We got closer and we got closer and we got closer and I just remember the panic and the sweat and the anxiety building and building and building. And then I just remember like thinking, oh, they're gonna bail me out at some point as we got closer. And then we, they pulled right up to the school and my mom just got out of the car and opened the back door and was like, get out. And like people could see into the car and see me in my underwear. I was like, shut the door, mom. Shut the door, but get out. And I said, no. I said, okay, should we just go home? And I said, no, I want to do the thing. I said, okay. And my mom lifted up like a sack of clothes, like, put these on, and threw them at me. And I happily put them on and went about my way. We still joke about that story. It's pretty epic. But don't we all experience that at different times? It may not be in your Power Rangers underwear, but it's something comparable. You think you want something. You have a vision for things should go. And sometimes it takes getting that thing or right up to the precipice of that thing before we recognize just the foolishness of what we we're asking for. It can happen in silly, insignificant things like this, although maybe a little bit scarring, uh, or it can happen in the deepest things related to our spiritual lives with God. My parents knew what was best for me. Uh, they knew what was more physically comfortable. They knew what was less humiliating. But they let me suffer a stretch of deep discomfort and even fear, even fear, little, you know, seven-year-old fear, in order for me to see that I didn't really want what I thought I did. Sometimes we have to experience a taste for ourselves in order to wake up. And this is where we begin to see in Jonah the storm and then this episode of sinking down into the water, both of these, not as an act of cruelty from God, but as an act of mercy. You see that? It's a severe mercy, as many commentators have called this, but it is an act of mercy, no less, to let Jonah experience this. It took the severity of the storm to drive Jonah to pray for the first time in this book. He's the prophet. And remember, even on the boat, the pagan says, like, pray to your God, help us. And it doesn't 
There's no story of him praying. He just is like, no, just kill me. Just throw me in. Finally, at the last moment, he says, as his life is fainting away, he prays for the first time in the book. It took desperation to bring him there. It took the reaching the limits of his own ability to, to manage his own life in his own way. It took being taken to the absolute end of the rope for him to realize that he could not direct himself anymore, any more than he could save himself. It took this for him to recognize his need for the mercy and grace of God. So a little bit of application here. This is often the point. It's not always. You can't always draw a neat one-to-one line, and it's really, frankly, insensitive when we try to do that in every case. It's usually something that's best observed from within yourself than trying to put this onto someone else's circumstances. But nonetheless, it is often the case that the point of the various storms we encounter, I'm talking about the heavy ones, I'm talking about the serious ones, I'm talking about the real scary things that we experience in our lives that are unavoidable. It is often the case that these storms we encounter in our lives, that they can be used by God and are used by God to shake us awake into deeper, truer, better things that we've been neglecting. They can, if we will let them, wake us up to the distance from God that we're encountering and compel us to, insofar as on on our side, we're able to close that distance, again, by his grace. So for Jonah, the storm and the sinking led to desperation, and it was only that desperation that led to prayer, and his prayer, his turning to God, his pleading with God led to salvation through God's grace. And it's a severe grace, it's a humiliating grace, it's not a grace that any of us want to encounter, but it is a necessary and beautiful grace nonetheless that Jonah experiences here. So that's the tee up. By the time we get into chapter two, he's just, it's this prayer that he's composing inside the belly of the fish. And we talked about last week, there's really two, two main ways you can read Jonah because Jonah really reads in its extremity, in its humor, in its brevity, in its uniqueness from the other prophets. It reads like a parable. And so there's two possibilities here, and I think you can respect the authority of Scripture on either one of these. One is that it was just a written parable that's meant to be kind of a comic story like Jesus told um, in his own ministry that it's like, you know, if you talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, did that actually happen? Well, no, it didn't. Is it true? Yes, it contains the deepest truths of the Christian faith. Or there are other things in Jesus' ministry that were almost like enacted parables. When he would heal someone, when he would heal the blind, let's say, they're often the way the biblical, the, the gospel authors are trying to get us to understand those is as almost metaphors for something even deeper about our spiritual blindness and so on. But in this case, it did happen. So it could be Jonah is, is like the former, or it could be that Jonah is like the latter, and he really did get swallowed by the fish, and all this genuinely happened. It doesn't really matter for us. The one thing I want to say is don't choose option two, or option one, I should say, because you think God can't do this. We, we don't need that option. We already believe in a God who created the universe with his voice, with his words. We already believe in a God who raised a, a publicly crucified Jesus from the grave, <laughs> that he appeared to hundreds of people and he ascended to the Father. It, keeping someone alive inside of a fish, it's weird, but it's easy for God, you know? So we, we would make our choice about Jonah based on the literary characteristics of the book, not because God can't do that, if that makes sense. 
So we won't get into it any further than that. I just wanted to recap that point. Because here we go. We're in the fish story. And now we've got a prayer composed from inside the belly of a fish. We've got a prayer from inside the belly of the fish. And in this, we see some beautiful things. So everything we just said is in some ways the backstory to the prayer that Jonah speaks here. And as we read the prayer, he's looking back on the act of salvation that God provided in the form of what? The fish. The fish swallowing him up. That's right. The fish, if you've ever thought about the fish in this book, it's not an act of judgment or punishment. It's the first act of grace and salvation that Jonah experiences in the book. God was able to take a feature of the dangerous, chaotic waters, this big fish, and use it as a means of deliverance, as a vehicle for salvation, literal, the saving of his life. Isn't that interesting? A little image about what God often does. So his salvation through the fish breaks out into thanksgiving and praise, and it must always. You can't, ex- you can't really come face to face with the saving mercy of God and not respond deep gratitude and praise for who he is. So these verses two through nine, they record a prayer of praise from the belly of the fish, thanking God for rescuing him. And an interesting, an interesting literary feature about this prayer, about these verses, is that it is just soaked in the language of the Psalms. There are hardly any phrases within this prayer that are not directly lifted from the Psalms. Did you know that? Jonah is clearly someone, for all his faults, who had meditated deep and wide on the words of the Psalms regularly and was able to call upon those great prayers to give language and shape to his own you know, experience and process as he was going through this. And this is instructive for us. Don't, don't miss this. Do you struggle to pray? I know most of us do. When, we're, when I'm meeting with people in our church, I know one of the common things is like, I, prayer just seems so dry and difficult. I imagine most of us would say, yes, my prayer life is not what I suspect it should be or could be. One lesson for us here, just a little, as a little sidebar, is to immerse ourselves in the Psalms. You know, the <laughs> Jews and Christians have rightly recognized the Psalms as the key book for both their prayer lives and their worship lives for basically our entire history. And often in an American church, we just totally neglect this immense, ancient, beautiful, deep, rich resource. You struggle to pray, immerse yourselves in the Psalms, pray the Psalms, and experience a master class in bringing your whole self and every emotion to God. You know, that's why we've, we've talked about this before, but the, the Psalms include prayers that are like, I don't think you can pray that. You've read those. Where you're like, David, I don't think, <laughs> you're not allowed to say that, man. That is too raw. You're too accusatory towards God. You're too uh, violently dismissive of your enemies. And it, you know, it, it takes work to unpack those things. And how are we supposed to understand those? But nonetheless, the point of the Psalms is that it is a collection, a very human collection, and also a divine collection of people pouring out every part of themselves to God because that is the safest place to do it. And honestly, whenever you're dealing with those violent Psalms, it's because that is the only safe place. It's a, God is the safest holder for your rage so that you don't go out, pick up the sword, and take it out on someone else. That's part of the lesson of those, those particular Psalms. So, Jonah, for all his faults, he had done this. He had absorbed the Psalms and this prayer that comes out of him, this prayer of thanksgiving and praise to what God has done is just soaked in their language. 
maybe as one more sidebar, don't be afraid to pray the prayers of others. It's been a huge practice for Christians throughout the ages. There's nothing, you know, praying spontaneously from your heart, of course, valuable, important, we need to do that. But Jesus gave us specific prayers to pray. We do it every Sunday, the Lord's Prayer. The Psalms are that. Even cool things like Every Moment Holy and some of those collections that people have been putting together, those are great resources. Sometimes we are just too strung out to have the words and to pick up the words of someone else who's gone before us can just be like a bomb. So that one's for free, but there you go. So let's hear the words of the prayer one more time. What does Jonah say? Again, soaked in the Psalms. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the currents engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me, and so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness or their steadfast love, some translations have. But I will, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving with which I have vowed. That which I have vowed, I will, pray, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. I think what we are to take from this prayer, there's, it's so deep and rich, even the structure of it is beautiful and amazing, but I think if we could just boil it down, I think what we're meant to take from Jonah's prayer here is the sense of humbling that's happened within Jonah. There's a sense of humbling. He has genuinely hit rock bottom. It's hard to hit more rock bottom than what, what he's experienced here. He has come face to face with his own sinful rebellion as well as his own limitations. He is utterly unable to save himself. And he's been shown his incredible need for the gracious mercy of God. That summary, the summary statements at the end, verse eight and nine, that kind of thematically tie this together. Those who regard vain idols forsake their steadfast love. He's speaking of himself. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I vowed I will pay because, here's the center point. Some theologians have called this the center point of the entire Bible. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Which is where I want to, kind of conclude. Final, final movement here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This mercy that Jonah is experiencing, yes, it's severe, and yes, it's humiliating. It's humiliating to have to call out and say, I can't do anything. I am helpless. There's nothing I can do to save myself. But it's also a dignifying mercy. Because this is not only, this episode's not only exposed Jonah's, you know, complete inability it's not only humbled him, but it has shown him God has not forgotten him. The love of God is still with him, even after his just straight up horrific rebellion in the context of this. The love of God remains. The love of God still comes down to snatch him out of the pit. 
It's not just that Jonah had great need, but it's that God, so rich in patience and mercy and steadfast love, will meet that need for him, has met that need for him, will meet that need for you. This episode highlights not just the sinfulness of Jonah, but more than that, the great need of Jonah. More than that, the readiness and the willingness of God to pour out his love and do everything necessary to cover that sinfulness and to meet that need. Tim Keller always put these things so well. In his book on Jonah, he he says it this way. He says, God's grace becomes wondrous, endlessly consoling, beautiful, and humbling only when we fully believe, grasp, and remind ourselves of all three of these background truths, that we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we're utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and that God has saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. He saved us at infinite cost to himself. And Jonah had no, no well, maybe a vague concept, but he didn't know the specifics of what was going to happen. Certainly whoever wrote Jonah didn't know the specifics of what was going to happen with Jesus. Had no idea that, this, that God himself was going to enter the human story to take on flesh in the person of Jesus. Who was going to live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserve to die in order to rescue us. He did not know the infinite, like, like infinite, sacrificing to death the infinite Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He did not know the measure of God's love was even that far, but we do. This side of the cross, we, we read this, salvation is from the Lord. We see God reaching down into the depths, and we see that he doesn't just do it as transcendent God above everything who kind of miraculously can work a fish to do this thing, though he can, but the one who entered into it and entered the depths himself. That is the love of God, most clearly seen, and it's unfathomable. And so in Jonah here, we see the humbling mercy of God towards him and towards us that reminds us we have great need, friends. We cannot save ourselves, but we also have the dignifying mercy is that that doesn't mean God hates you. It doesn't mean God's disinterested in you. It doesn't mean God thinks you're gross or weird or wants to keep his distance from you. It means he wants, like his love is so deep that he will go through any and every possible thing to rescue you. I think, I think it's this experience of grace, it's Jonah having this experience that allows Jonah to pick up after this, which we're going to talk about next week, allows him to pick up and actually go back to Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? It's this episode, it's him coming face to face with all these things that allows him to pick up and go back to Nineveh, back to the Assyrians, back to be part of God's rescue mission to the world. It allows him to, on some level, extend grace to them, even to them, because he is all of a sudden, for the first time, recognized he needs that grace himself. He needs that grace himself. He's able to recognize their need because he's come face to face with his need. And so, tying back into the overall theme of this, you know, I, I said last week, this book is about the, uh, the relationship. It's not about the fish. Let's, you know, don't get distracted on that point. This is about the relationship between the people of God and the great cities of our world that we might want to run from. Let's take ours again. In this story here, Jonah chapter 2, this is a call not to view our neighbors, not to view our city as too far gone. 
Some of us, I know, I know because we've had those conversations, some of us there's been a real bitterness that's come in around our city. We almost just want to give it over to its own destruction. This would be a rebuke to that. This is a call not to view our neighbors, not to view our city as too far gone or as somehow undeserving of grace, undeserving of mercy. It starts with us because if we have been shown grace, what does Jesus say? Then you are to extend the same to all others without exception. You must forgive as you have been forgiven. And it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to point out things that are unhealthy or unjust or just inept or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But in our heart of hearts, Jonah chapter 2 would call us to recognize the great mercy and grace we've been shown and then to have a passion to go and show that to everyone else who desperately needs it. The posture could never be to run the other direction. And I'm not, don't read this as coded for like, if anyone moves out of Portland, you're in sin or something like that. Of course, that's not what I mean. You can just set that idea aside. But what I mean, how do we in our hearts of hearts fundamentally understand our relationship to the city? I hope it will be as those who have been touched and transformed by grace that we might come and be a presence of that grace, an embodied presence of that grace in this city for the good of this city because God loves this city, amen? Amen. So, Jonah, that's chapter two. Gosh, there's so much more we could say, but we shouldn't for now. The question is, will he now have what he needs to pick up his mission? I already said it, spoiler alert, he's gonna go. Chapter three picks, he's all right, I'll go. I'll go to Nineveh, but he still has more lessons to learn. There are more twists in this story. Uh, He has more lessons to learn, and so do we. So we'll pick up next week with this. For now, let's pray.